faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger from the planet Krypton, the man of steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second season of Superman Forever Radio. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And before we begin, a quick update on my mom. Um, she has uh, improved. She's home now. She's doing better. She's not 100%, but she's a fighter, and she is definitely improved. And I do want to thank the many of you who offered your prayers and positive thoughts, including Charlie Niemeyer, Billy Hogan, Steve Chin, many others. It does mean a lot to me. I appreciate that. And uh, so that, that brings us to what is Season 2? Why? Well, since DC is relaunching this very week that this episode hits... And there are some scheduling snafus on my part. I thought it would be good to just have a, a bit of a clean start, a new era for the show, and also a way to not only justify the hiatus, but kind of give me a chance to have that new starting point. So what's season two? What changes? Nothing much. Um, we're going to still be reading through every post-Infinite Crisis Superman comic up until the book's end in 2011. Season 2 will focus uh, primarily on the road to New Krypton, which includes Superman and the Legion of Superheroes, Brainiac, Final Crisis, Final Crisis Superman Beyond, which means the return of Connor Kent, spoiler, uh, Superman and Batman vs. Vampires and Werewolves, and more. Now, in the, in the more department, uh, this will uh, be a longer, fairly long season in time-wise. It's going to be about 20-some-odd episodes, and I plan on doing some specials in there. Um, one will be a commentary for the 1978 Christopher Reeve Superman movie, which is something I've been wanting to do with the show for quite some time. Another will be my first Christmas special, or holiday special. And there'll be an episode devoted to Superman Requiem, the fan film being made by Gene Fillets, starring Martin Richardson. And both of those nice gentlemen have been on the show. And if you look at uh, themanofsteelisback.com, You'll see that I am listed as an associate producer on that film, so definitely want to cover that in November. I have a few creator interviews lined up to go along with the comics and some other special guests up my sleeve. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean nothing is changing. There is one big change, and that is that during Season 2, the show will become bi-weekly. Uh, what this will do is it will allow me to continue producing the show at my normal weekly schedule, but by staggering these releases, I build some into the can. And so when things come up, like my mom being in the hospital or something like that, I can keep the show on track. Now, to be honest, it wasn't an easy decision to make. I went through several of them sitting in the hospital room, thinking it over. But I do believe it's the right one. It allows me some breathing room, plus more time to do slightly longer, more in-depth episodes. So the quality will go up. Um, one other change, or I guess return, as it were is that the episodes will be going forward. Uh, they will be released on Sundays again, just like the old days. It just felt like Superman Forever belonged there. So every two weeks on Sunday, a new Superman Forever radio for the entirety of Season 2, which should take us through uh, through next spring, maybe early summer of next year. 
And once we wrap the season up, there'll be another short hiatus uh, just before season three tackles new Krypton. Now that's a ways off, but I've started planning a little bit. Uh, there'll be a few small changes at that point. Um, right now it looks like, uh, for example, season three, new Krypton, I'll be going through uh, shield number rather than cover date, which will make new Krypton a little bit easier to digest, but it's still a lot. So, um, one other thing in my absence, pad smash and incredible Hulk podcast made its debut. And I want to thank everybody for listening to that. There should be another episode right around the time this episode hits inevitably doing both a Superman and Hulk podcast. The question will inevitably arise who would win in a fight between Superman and the Hulk. So I'm just going to head that off at the pass, be proactive and put that out there on this episode and also be covering this on pad smash as well. And just a disclaimer, I got to let you know if, if, if we were talking about the DC universe, the rules would still stand my rules. Nobody is able to take out soups, but Batman, that's another discussion. And, but when you mix universes specifically here, Marvel versus DC, things change. And I would actually give the victory to the Hulk. I know, you know, not what you were expecting, but hear me out on this. There, there have been many arguments. Uh, Superman can blast Hulk with heat vision. Superman can fly. Well, Superman wouldn't use enough of the heat vision to kill the Hulk, which is not a bad thing. Unfortunately, it's going to serve nothing but ticking the Hulk right off. And when the Hulk gets mad, he gets stronger. Another uh, argument, as I mentioned, the flying argument, he could fly in a circle around Hulk at super speed and suck all the oxygen out. Yes, but Hulk, now especially given that it might be the savage green Hulk, he has animalistic survival instincts. So once he realized what was going down, he would simply leap out of that whirlpool. And of course, you got freeze breath, but that's, uh, you know, Hulk's going to break out of that and he's just going to be even madder. So ultimately, yes, I do believe Superman would subdue the Hulk, but when you drop Hulk right in the middle of New Troy and have him go to toe-to-toe with Big Blue, Metropolis is screwed. I mean, the Hulk will wreck the place, and Superman's main courses of action would either be kill the Hulk or put him in the Phantom Zone, and that's assuming he can't subdue it. Now, taking into account that he might subdue the Hulk and get him back to Banner, I think Lois would be more apt to do that. She's a little bit Betty Banner-like. But even then, by the time the Hulk's calmed down, the property damage to Metropolis, the death toll, the damage to Superman himself, it would be severe. And that's putting it gently. The Hulk is a force of nature. He will tear things up. So Superman may stop the Hulk, but the damage is done. And in that respect, the Hulk wins just because of the damage he would put on everything around him. Now, to support my argument, I must simply point out that the fight would be very much like Doomsday, and that battle that destroyed half of Metropolis and, you know, killed Superman. So Hulk, Doomsday, think it over. They're very similar, and then you can see where that would go. So, that's out of the way. So, if you have any responses to that of course it's at you can email me at mail at supermanforever.com or tweet me on twitter it is at superman forever superman the number forever and those will be at the end of the show as well and uh with that out of the way i'm ready for season two let's kick this thing off so i appreciate you listening i appreciate your patience with the show i appreciate the support 
of the show. It means a lot to me to have listeners like you. And, you know, there are times when it's really frustrating. I feel like, uh, you know, it's an uphill battle with some episodes just because of time, because of content, because I really want to make a good show and it feels like it's not coming out right. But knowing that there are, you know, listeners and I've made a lot of friends through this show who are diehard. Uh, it means a lot. It means a lot. It makes, you know, that time that I put in there, that frustration, totally 110% worth it. So thank you for listening. And here's to a bright, shiny new season of Superman Forever Radio. Let's, uh, I'm going to do my best to make it the best so far. So let's get this show going. Let's play a quick promo and let's just jump right into the action with the second half of uh, December of 2007 and the books that came out that month. Take the mightiest superheroes on Earth. Each an invincible champion of justice. Band them together in a common cause against crime and evil. And you have the The Justice Justice League of America. And now their adventures are being chronicled on the Podcast of Justice a bi-weekly podcast covering every issue of the Justice League from the Silver Age to today. Join hosts Charlie Niemeyer and Isaac Frisbee at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com And we're back. Now, kicking off uh, the, the uh, books for the second half of December of 2007 is Action Comics number 858, cover dated late December of 07. This would have actually gone on sale on October 31st, 2007. And then three years later, Superman Forever would be born on that very day. Uh, this is Superman and the Legion of Superheroes Part 1, Alien World. It was written by Jeff Johns, penciled by Gary Frank, inked by John Sabal, colored by Dave McCraig, Lettered by Rob Lay, with associate editor Nachi Castro, edited by Matt Idelson, and of course Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Uh, this was also reprinted in the Superman and the Legion of Superheroes hardcover and trade paperback, as well as an Action Comics Special Edition 858, part of the What's Next initiative. And we open to a familiar scene on an alien world where a couple makes the difficult decision to place their infant son into a rocket to save him from the fate of their doomed planet. The infant is launched into space and the rocket lands in Smallville, Kansas on Earth. And a kindly couple finds the craft and the infant and decide to do what any law-abiding citizen would do in their situation. Kill it! Ah, see, you thought you knew what was going on, but no, 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 au contraire. This is the year 3008 AD, and this is a separate set of aliens on a completely different planet sending their kid to Earth. Uh, the older man that finds the kid points the rifle at the child, and the scene ends. So back in our time, more familiar time, Clark Kent rushes to a bank of elevators at the Daily Planet building, watching the door shut right in front of him. Jimmy Olsen approaches Clark and offers to have a soda with him, but before that conversation gets too far, Perry White comes bellowing out of his office. Perry just tears Jimmy a new one. Since his pictures of the Kryptonian Kryptonian invasion from Last Sun have huge white lines through them. And Jimmy explains that his lens was cracked by a piece of flying debris. So Perry puts Jimmy back on coffee duty. Two sugars. And Perry then turns his attention to Clark 
and chastises Clark for really just a lack of self-confidence and social skills. And while Perry is just talking away, Clark picks up some commotion with his super hearing. Using his X-ray and telescopic visions, Clark spots a giant Brainiac robot stalking around Centennial Park. So Clark runs off and changes into Superman and flies to meet the giant Brainiac and punches the faceplate right off the robot. Beneath the faceplate is a monitor, and on that monitor is Brainiac 5, Cinco, who announces to Superman that the future needs his help, despite the fact that the others tried to keep Superman out of it. Brainiac 5 tells Superman that he is one of his friends, and then zaps Superman in the face with a bolt of energy. What's that saying with friends like these? Yeah. The beam sends Superman into a flashback of his early high school junior high days, where a forlorn teenage Clark Kent stands awkwardly and watches his classmates, listening to them with his super hearing, as they talk about how odd and creepy Clark is. Sad and lonely, Clark walks away and looks to the sky where the birds are flying, so Clark joins them briefly. Returning to the ground, Clark overhears new voices and stumbles on Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lad, and Saturn Girl floating in the air. Saturn Girl greets him as Kal-El, which surprises the heck out of him. And the trio explain that they are from the late 30th century and they came back to thank him. They give Clark a pep talk about how he won't always have to hide behind his glasses. And they give him his own Legion flight ring as a gesture of gratitude. The Legionnaires start to leave for their own time and Clark asks to come along. Cosmic Boy initially balks at this request, but Lightning Lad convinces him to take Clark to the 30th century home of the Legion of Superheroes. The flashback ends there, and we come back to the present, where Superman remembers the Legion and having adventures with them in the future. But there had been a crisis, and Superman hadn't seen any of them since the recent events of the Lightning Saga, which you can see in Justice League number 8 through 10, and Justice Society number 5 through 6. Brainiac tells Superman that he is needed in the future and that a time sphere comes out of the robot's chest. So Superman takes the flight ring, jumps right into the time sphere, which travels to the future where Superman stumbles out, disoriented from his trip. And he's shocked to see the Legion headquarters in a state of horrid disrepair. Superman is immediately accosted by 30th century police, uh, science police at that. But Colossal Boy crashes through the wall and knocks them down. Colossal Boy, who, well, he grows giant, he calls back that he has the rings, and Superman asks him, what's going on? So, uh, Colossal Boy is surprised to see Superman, and so are Dawnstar, who is uh, well, a winged chick, and Wildfire, who is energy in a suit, and we're going to go into those more next episode. And they say that they haven't seen Brainiac 5 for over six months. Wildfire tries to usher Superman back into the time sphere, but more science police raid the building and destroy it. So uh, the time sphere and the building, by the way, Superman tries to reason with the science police and holds up a hand to deflect their bullets, but gets a huge surprise when the bullet shoots cleanly through his hand. Dawnstar rushes to Superman's aid and helps activate his flight ring while Colossal Boy makes an exit. And as Superman and Legionnaires escape, Dawnstar explains that in the 30th century, Earth's sun is red and Superman is powerless. So who wants to go page by page? Page one gets a, well, a retraction because, well, we get it. It's a parallel Earth, uh, it's symbol, or parallel alien planet, parallel to Superman's origin. It isn't necessarily a, that bad of a choice because clearly the origin is referenced. They say that, you know, Earth inspired Superman. But it would have been kind of cool to show it slightly differently and make the reader almost think that this is Jor-El and Lara. 
and then Mar- Jonathan and Martha, only to find out that that's not where or when you think it is. On page nine, we get an awkward Clark Kent moment when Clark misses the elevator. The thing that always uh, it perplexes me about Jeff Johns and his Clark Kent is you can never really tell how much of the awkwardness is real and how much of it is an act. There's a moment here on panels four and five where Clark looks at his reflection in the elevator door and he seems genuinely sad. Now, Byrne had Clark as the real person in Superman more of an act, which evolved into both being really more of a bit of an act with a version in between being the real personality. And I really would like to know more about John's Clark Superman dynamic, but sadly it will soon be a thing of memory. So let's move on to page 11 where Perry is critiquing uh, Jimmy's pictures of the Zod invasion. Well, clearly everyone lives right there. You have to be psyched, right? Way to, way to make, uh, take some of the suspense away of, of last son, which at this time hadn't come out yet. Hadn't concluded. Also on this page, I like the fact that Perry is chomping away on a lit cigar as a maintenance man hangs up a no-smoking sign. Nice touch. Perry doesn't care about rules. I do have a hang-up on page 13, where we get an awesome shot of Clark jumping out the window of the storage room with the shirt opening, and then in the next panel, he's in full Superman gear. Where did Clark's clothes go? Superman's in midair. Surely he didn't drop them down to the street. But it doesn't look like he rushed back into the supply closet and stashed them there. I know he's supposed to have a pocket on his cape, but at least show me what is going on. <sighs> Move, moving on to page 16. I didn't realize... Uh, I didn't... Didn't Superman recognize the Legionnaires and even comment, comment a little bit on his history with them during the Lightning Saga? Why does he suddenly need a bolt of lightning in the kisser to recall them unless Jeff Johns wanted to have a convenient vehicle for, awkwardly, for an awkwardly placed flashback? Jeff Johns is good at that. I know parts of his memory would be erased when he returned to his own time, but he would at least know Brainiac Vibe's face. Along with that, the meeting of the Legion scene on pages 17 through 24, we will see that again in a slightly longer form in Superman's Secret Origin down the line. And in this scene on page 19 specifically, we see Clark flying with the birds, which I like. Johns and Frank, uh, they really are a good team. I mean, I can nitpick them to death, but they're a great team. They do a lot with no dialogue, very few panels, and, and very little captions, which is, which is a gift. One quick side note. The splash page on pages 26 and 27, earmark that. As I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the Legion of Superheroes next time around. We're going to delve into them, and we're going to be using this image to work off of. So if you're reading along... Don't put this issue back in the long box just yet, because we will be using that and page 32 uh, for an explanation of the interlac language. So, wrapping up up my page-by-page notes, on page 29, Superman just hops right into the time sphere after a giant brainiac robot stomps around the park, blasts him in the face, scrambling his brain, Superman takes Brainiac 5 on his word and on memories that didn't seem to be there before. Okay, because Superman doesn't have any techno-shape-shifting enemies, I get it, but uh, I guess it serves the story. No, no techno-shape-shifting enemies at all. I wonder what Hank Henshaw's doing. Speaking of which, we're going to be talking about him a little bit later, so how convenient. Finally, on page 36, Superman's boots seem to have this yellow trim at the top, kind of like Supergirl's. It looks like a, a miscolor, but it's consistent through the page and then pops up in a couple of panels prior to that. 
It bugs me a little, enough to point it out like a kid tattling at recess time. So overall, the story was a little weak on plot, to be honest. But we did get what we did get was right on. Uh, however, Lois was sadly absent again, not even a mention. And as I mentioned, Jeff Johns does an odd Clark-Superman dynamic. You don't know whether to laugh at Clark's awkwardness or actually feel bad about it, which causes a conflict for me because I need that definition, not the ambiguity of not knowing how to feel. Uh, the writer's job is to kind of dictate how a person feels when reading their material. Ultimately, it's a setup. This whole issue is it doesn't entirely set up the pertinent details. We only get a brief, brief hint of what Superman is walking into, which isn't entirely bad. It definitely had some moments, like the bullet going straight through Superman's hand and the reveal of the red sun. And it did, you know, ultimately what a first issue of a new storyline should overall. It got me interested to see what happens in the next issue. In terms of the art, Gary Frank Superman, well, it's modeled very clearly and very accurately off of Christopher Reeve which has been somewhat controversial. Some people look at it as a great homage. Others find it creepy and disrespectful. I fall kind of right in the middle. I appreciate what Frank did. It gives the character a weighty feeling and you get a sense of body language and voice. But that comes from the recess of our memories, from watching the Christopher Reeve movies. So this forces you to picture a very specific Superman, not the voice or the idea you may have in your own head, and this limits imagination, which can hurt the reading experience. However, his depiction of the Legion and supporting characters like Perry White and Jimmy really shine. And the layouts and framing, they're marvelous. And I grew actually to be a Gary Frank fan while he was doing the Hulk with Peter David back in the 90s. His style is fresh. It's very crisp. It's not cluttered. Not cluttered at all. His storytelling and his character work, they're superb. And I'm not saying Frank, Gary Frank could do no wrong, but I am saying it's hard for me not to like his work. So overall, this issue is going to set us in a direction with Action Comics that isn't going to let up for quite some time. It's going to be one after another after another. So prepare for this. And the book doesn't stand still for months. I mean, literally. And when it does, it's rearing back and waiting to run again. So Johns and Frank, they make a really great team. And whenever you pull the Legion in, it's going to be... It's going to get and usually keep my attention. So was this issue good as a standalone? It was better than average, but not legendary. As an introduction to a new storyline, it stands out. So I give Action Comics 858 a rating of pull list, because this issue would make me a believer if I were reading it for the first time. So moving right along, we're going to take a look at Superman number 669, which also had a cover date of late December of 2007. This one would have come out a little bit earlier, on October 24th of 2007. And this issue's story is The Third Kryptonian Part 2, The Escape. Written by Kurt Busiek, penciled by Rick Leonardi, inked by Dan Green, lettered by Comic Craft, colored by Alex Sinclair, associate editor Najee Castro, edited by Matt Idelson, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And this is reprinted in The Third Kryptonian trade paperback. In Northern California, Superman tracks down the plants. That last issue put some teenagers in a coma, as well as giving them frantic superpowers. And he drops down at the house of Kristen Wells, who immediately punches the crap out of Superman. And by I say out the crap, I mean she punches him so hard that he is literally knocked to Tokyo, Japan. So Superman doubles up, flies back to California, and talks to Kristen Wells. 
convincing her that he is not a threat to her, even as she points a rifle that was developed to fight Kryptonians at him. But Kristen decides that she will talk to Superman, and she fills Superman in on the fact that she was Karsta Worrell, who served under Drew Zod, not to be confused with the recent villain General Zod. Drew Zod was an admiral of the Kryptonian Navy, which is being disbanded at the close of the Kryptonian Empire on other worlds. And as the Science Council kind of took over the world of the planet, everything got a little less domineering. The Navy was being disbanded, and the ships were going to be dismantled to usher in this new age of peace. And many of the naval officers, uh, Karsten included, didn't want to lose the powers they gained under the Yellow Sun on the other worlds. So they came up with a plan to steal the Admiral's ship, the Doomsday, and escape the Eradicator squads. But the Doomsday was gone by the time they got there, as Admiral Druzad had sent it into space, crewless, rather than see it dismantled. So it's wandering around, just doing its thing, with no crew on it. So the crew, that they ran. And only 35 of the 80 deserters managed to make it to an asteroid field where the sensor sweeps wouldn't find them. Well, with their plan in shambles, they kind of weighed their options. They could return and face a fine or keep going. And in the end, it was decided that they would sooner die than be grounded on Krypton. So they drifted through space, their jetpacks out of fuel and their oxygen almost depleted in a desperate gamble. And they deployed a solar grenade, which duplicated the effects of a yellow sun. So the crew managed to make it to an outpost that the Eradicators hadn't destroyed yet and go their separate ways. Karsta and her friends went to a planet with an orange sun, which had been kind of a favorite watering hole. And Karsta and her friends visited this bar, but were quickly chased away by soldiers from Almorak. Karsta and the crew had been laboring under the idea that the Kryptonian presence was welcomed on other worlds. But in reality, they were feared. And that wasn't the last run-on. Run-in. <laughs> on every planet they visited, they met with hatred. Some went home, some died... And Karsta kept on becoming a mercenary and eventually, well, a pirate. And during this time, Karsta met Ro Cole, who was an interstellar navy as well, and the two of them fell in love and left the life of piracy behind, exploring the universe together and eventually building a home and settling down together in the interstellar gulf. After about a century of living together, the two of them experienced three months of strange dreams, in which voices called out for Kandor to save them. Superman stops Karsta's story and tells her that, hey, whoa, 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 I, I rescued Kandor. It's here on Earth. And, you know, which the ship in space, if you remember the red-faced alien from Farscape, uh, that ship is actually spying on the conversation. It overhears, and he gets excited. So Superman continues explaining that they had encountered the Doomsday way back in the Up, Up, and Away storyline. You remember that? Superman asks Karsta if they knew of Krypton's destruction, and Karsta answers that, yeah, they had other problems at the time. The refugees had begun to meet in friendly territories to maintain some contact, kind of like a convention. <laughs> and on uh, one of these meetings, there was an ambush sprung by the alien we saw watching over the conversation, who's named Amalak. He's a pirate like Karsta, but he'd been way, way more brutal. And Rokul and Karsta managed to escape, but many did not, and Amalak continued to just hunt the survivors for years, keeping Karsta and Rokul on the run. Sadly, for Rokul, time ran out as Amalak found him and killed him. So Karsta ran alone for a long time and eventually headed to Earth since Superman would be far more noticeable target than she would and serve as an early warning system. I'd use the term human shield, but I think Kryptonian shield would be more appropriate. 
She was able to loot treasure from the ocean floor, set up a false name. She could buy a house and stay low, all the while following Superman's career. And she actually grew complacent. She realized she was safe. She started to forget to maintain her shields, which is how the auctioneer found her. So Carson decides that it's time for her to run again. And Superman says that since she killed and sold as a pirate, he's not sure he can actually let her leave. The scene turns tense for a moment, but before the stalemate can get too far, Amalek himself shows up, rips the rooftop off Karsta's house, vowing to wash all of Krypton's blood away and take his revenge. And that is where Superman 669 ends. Going page by page again. Pages 2 and 3, they have this really good double splash of Superman getting hit, and it really makes me think of a cross between Jack Kirby and John Bogdanov. The colors, as well, I want to note, they really pop here. Page 4 gives us a Superman knocked all the way from California to Tokyo, which gives me the impression that Kristen can actually give Superman a run for his money. She is older, she's had her powers longer, so she's more experienced, plus she has extensive military training. A fight between these two could be fun. On page 8, we get, Car- or we get Kristen or Karsta's origin, which takes up the bulk of the issue. And while this Kristen Wells is Karsta Worrell, this is not the first time the name Kristen Wells has come up in the Superman mythology. Originally, Kristen Wells was a journalism student who was a red-haired descendant of Jimmy Olsen in the year 2857. Kristen first appeared in the Elliot S. Magan novel Miracle Monday from 1978, which you should probably read. Eventually, I should probably cover on this show. And her first comic appearance was in Superman Volume 1, Number 400. For her journalism thesis, Kristen traveled to the past to research the origin of a holiday known as Miracle Monday. Miracle Monday was a holiday celebrated on the third Monday of every May. It was uh, initiated in 1981, according to continuity, when the ruler of hell, Samael, sent his agent C.W. Saturn to Earth to corrupt Superman. Kristen had actually entrenched herself into Superman's inner circle by becoming Lois Lane's assistant. But since she was not from the 20th century, C.W. Saturn was actually able to possess Kristen and use her to try and corrupt Superman. And since the Man of Steel is incorruptible, as we all know, Saturn was unable to achieve this. Now, to celebrate this event, him overcoming this, a dinner is held every year for the needy, with an extra place set at each table to honor Superman. So in an odd way, Kristen was practicing what Hunter S. Thompson would call gonzo journalism. As she became part of the story, but not the only time. Later, after graduating, uh, Krista became a professor herself. She went back in time again to study the superheroine known as Superwoman. And it turns out that Kristen actually became Superwoman using 29th century technology. She was able to fly, teleport, use empathy and telekinesis, and she was precognitive. Now, this story occurred in DC Comics Presents Annual Number 2 in 1983. And Kristen would make one more trip to the 20th century where an accident would take her memory. And Kristen would build her own legend as Superwoman before returning to her own time. So when I said in the last episode that the K. Wells reference on the mailbox was an Easter egg, this was the reference I was uh, referring to. And clearly the Kristen Wells name is really just an homage. Uh, She doesn't even resemble Superwoman. I know she has powers, but it's an entirely different uh, thing. Later down the line, we'll actually will be revisiting Superwoman. Uh, that'll be in Season 3. Entirely new context, but I just want to note that. So technically, this is a first appearance of an entirely new character in Karsta Warrell. Amalak, however, has appeared before prior to the New Earth era. 
His first appearance was in Superman Volume 1, number 190, back in 1966. And he was a pirate, even in that issue. But for his uh, first appearance, he didn't have that thirst of vengeance on Kryptonians. That wouldn't actually manifest itself into Superman number 195, also Volume 1. And while he looks very Farscape now, as I, I like to joke, Amalek originally looked more like uh, a little bit like Sinestro, the Green Lantern villain. His last appearance, uh, he would actually grow the beard and long hair. It's in Superman Volume 1, issues 313 and 314, which resulted in Amalek's death after trying to convince Superman that he had uh, that the Man of Steel himself had killed. Now, after that tangent, we come on to page 9, where the spacesuits worn by the Kryptonians, they really remind me of Voltron pilots with giant laser tag guns strapped to their back. And maybe that's just because I'm a child of the 80s. I don't know. But that's what I see. And on page 10, we get a reference to Drew Zod's ship, the Doomsday, which is the same ship that Luthor used in the Up, Up, and Away storyline. And that fleshes that out just a little bit. Perhaps if I'd read a little bit further ahead, I would have had my questions at that time. So, sorry about that. And I want you to look closely at panel 2 of page 13. Isn't it nice that the Savage Dragon could make a cameo? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's something uh, about the interstellar setting of the issue. I keep getting reminded of other comics, especially on page 18, where I immediately go to Alien Legion. And then I wonder, what happened to Larry Stroman? And then I'm Googling him, remembering how much I liked him with Peter David on X-Factor. And I can't remember if I liked Tribe in the 90s from Image Comics. Then suddenly all the work on this show ceases. And I search my long boxes to see if I still have issues of Tribe. And when I find that I don't, I have to add that to my run list and pray I liked it. And then suddenly I wonder why I haven't read any Alien Legion issues in a long while. And I'm reminded that I was working on a review, jump off this page, and move on to page 20. Actually happened, kids. The panel of Amalek uh, listening in feels really forced here. Uh, it's just kind of shoehorned in. It really disrupts the flow of the scene, just to remind us that he's out there. And maybe if they placed it at the front or something like that, with just a little bit of exposition that, hey, I'm here, it would have been a little bit better, but this was just an odd spot. Uh, the thing that clicked for me about Amalek happens on page 23 when I had to ask myself, why is Forrest Whitaker's character from Battlefield Earth attacking Havoc from the X-Men in panel 3? I had to pinch myself to remember that this is a Superman book, not a 90s X-Men book, and that's what's been bothering me about this villain in these last two issues. He reeks of spectator-era comic villains, when all you had to do was throw a gun in the hand of a hyper-violent character set on revenge and set him loose on the hero with no real motivation or character development. A punching bag villain, a simplified vessel to facilitate violence. And I'm wondering if Busick even likes Superman. Since Big Blue barely appears in this issue, it's mostly a flashback that could have been boiled down to a few pages, leaving room for a fight with Amalek in this very issue. And while Karsta is a pretty interesting character, and we do you know, kind of learn a little bit more about New Earth Krypton, we still don't... It doesn't excuse the fact that there just isn't enough Superman in his own title which is going to be a large complaint over the next uh, season. In terms of art, Leonardo does an above-average job. He has some nice splash pages, but he doesn't, you know, blow it out of the water. I do see an improvement from last issue, and I like the clean style he uses for the flashbacks, but maybe he's straddling the line, he's straddling the line just a little too much between straight storytelling and stylized art. you got to pick one. Now, there is a melding of both in the world. Look at Darwin Cook. 
does a great job on both fronts. But Leonardi, he seems to switch back and forth without warning, and sometimes it's in some of the oddest places. Now, overall, as an issue, it felt like a good issue, but not great. The storyline kind of halts for Karst's flashback, but the flashback is interesting. Maybe not enough to support an entire issue, but enough to at least be enjoyable and engage the reader. So I give Superman 669 a rating of Wait for the Trade. At the moment, it's unfinished business. We're going to get back to that. Speaking of unfinished business, why don't we finish our look at the uh, Fourth World characters with a look at the Forever People. Uh, This is the the last of a three-part look at them. And as I mentioned, we're looking at the Forever People, which is kind of a subsection a high father who we covered in episode 38, he decided to do a social experiment. Uh, there's something a little scary about powerful beings trying a social experiment, but what he did is he took five random children from different points in Earth's history, and he brought them to New Genesis where they grew up together. Now, these, these are Mark Moonrider, who is the leader. He has a Megaton touch, not to be confused with a Megatron touch, which would be wicked cool. The other members are Big Bear, one of my favorites, who can alter the density of objects, including himself, so it makes him strong and invulnerable. There's also Seraphan, a cowboy with no actual powers, but a pair of six shooters, which use cosmic cartridges to do many, many different things. There's Viking, the first African-American superhero in the DC Universe. Yes, that's correct. And he has magnetic powers and works well with machines, kind of like Forge from the X-Men, kind of very gifted. So that also includes Mother Box as well. The lone female character, Beautiful Dreamer, has the ability to project illusions and some psychic gifts. The reason I bring them up, and why they have their own section, is in their first appearance, the Forever People number one, Superman guest starred. So he segued this era in for these characters. And it kind of pins together why this is a three-part thing. Uh, that story, it gets put in motion when Darkseid captures Beautiful Dreamer and sends her to Earth. So the gang gets a giant multi-passenger motorcycle and a souped-up mother box, and they head right after her to Earth. Which is where they meet Superman, who helps them fight Darkseid's minions in order to gain admittance to Supertown. Now, Supertown is actually Celestial City. This is where the Forever People are from. Uh, the city was created by the High Father. It's a floating city. It's incredibly beautiful, with a lot of art and statues, and most visitors think that they've gone to heaven. Uh, Superman's draw to Supertown is the idea that he would no longer be the odd one. Now, if everyone else in the city is like him, he can lead a normal life. Or, well, what would equate to a normal life. In the end, Superman decides that he can't just leave humanity. So he turns back just as the boom tomb closes, sealing the city off from him, presumably forever but not before the, peer, the forever people crack out one giant trick of their own. Infinity Man. We talked about him a few episodes back, and he's the brother of Darkseid, which is seemingly killed at the hands of Darkseid. But actually, he was sent to another dimension where he recuperated and took on the mantle of Infinity Man. The odd thing is, when the forever people are in trouble, they're able to summon Infinity Man a lot like Captain Planet. That's right, the power is yours. Infinity Man will basically clean up their messes and then return to wherever he came from, which makes me think of a Genesis game. And one of the few major New Gods characters that just doesn't quite fit in anywhere that I didn't cover that we will be coming to odds with uh, soon is Mantis. 
Uh, Mantis is not in any way related to the late 90s Fox superhero series, which rocked the screens with its tale of a paraplegic who dons a special suit to gain superhuman prowess. Not that the show wasn't awesome, because it absolutely was. But this is something different. Mantis is actually matched in power and apocalypse only by Darkseid. And what he is, he's the leader of an insect race that was originally on New Genesis. But they left that to actually come to Apocalypse, where the murky fire pits are, and uh, serve Darkseid. On top of super strength, stamina, and flight, Mantis can actually absorb energy and then turn it around and place a beatdown. Now what he does is he basically serves as another lackey for Darkseid, doing the bidding of the Dark Lord when asked. So why? Why am I on him? Because we're going to see him in just a minute. But ultimately, why am I focusing on the Forever People beyond that? This is the important part, kids. I ultimately wanted to talk about them really to justify why I have covered the fourth world in general on a Superman podcast. While it's largely true that the new gods stand on their own, as I mentioned, they could support their own podcast all day long. They have been co-opted into the, into the DC universe and the most prominent tether is the Superman mythology. Since the Silver Age, Superman has been one of, if not the best superheroes to put giant epic cosmic situations around it doesn't get more epic than the fourth world saga, so it's very fitting. And Darkseid, he's going to end up being a constant recurring villain for the Man of Steel for many decades. And he would actually be the main adversary in the last couple seasons of... Uh, uh, and we're about to see toward the end of this week's episode, ironically. He was a big part of Superman the Animated Series. And he was also the villain in the last couple seasons of Super Friends, is what I meant to say before I got distracted by an issue of Alien Legion. So, with some evidence behind me, now you know why I consider the new gods part of the Superman mythology. And that's why Orion, Calabac, Darkseid, Light Ray, um, they all stand behind, beside my figures, uh, Steel, Supergirl, Superboy, Lex Luthor. So they, they fit into that mythology. I consider it that, and the reason is Superman was the entrance for that into the DC Universe proper. So, that's kind of it. I just wanted to kind of uh, clarify that and uh, that's a little bit shorter than normal but after this promo we're actually going to continue talking about the forever people because we're going to take a look at superman confidential number eight featuring uh, the forever people ah see see you thought it was a coincidence it was not it was all immaculately timed just not by me anyway i'm going to play a quick promo we're going to take a look at superman confidential number eight and a couple of specials before going and wrapping up with superman the animated series Enjoy. This is the voice of the randomizer. Do you hear me, Earthman? You gave me your numbers and forced me to pick one. For that, you must face the consequences. Each week, I will make you review a random comic book. Yes, each week on the 20 Minute Long Box, I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection, completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the Super Compressed podcast for the decompressed, written for trade age. Join me, Steve Lacey, each week at 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes.
And we are back. Moving on to Superman Confidential number eight, which had a late December 2007 cover date. This actually went on stands before the other two on September 5th of 2007. It is entitled The Edge of Forever. It's written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, penciled by Chris Batista, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Jason Wright, lettered by Travis Lanham. Assistant editor was Harry Richards. It was edited by Michael Siglane. And, of course, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And the issue opens media res with Superman fighting Victor Volcanum, who was artificially triggering volcanic activity with his airship rotor laser. And Superman smashes Volcanum's ship and freezes the volcanic eruption as the narration talks about Volcanum's motives. And the narration actually segues us into a TV show where Volcanum announces that his motivation was to destroy the one thing that stood in in his way of world domination, and that is Superman. So with that, the narrator is revealed to be Morgan Edge on his talk show, Thinking Aloud, and that is spelled as if I allowed that to happen. And Edge makes the case that Superman is the cause of the most dangerous threats to Metropolis. At the Daily Planet, Lois feels like Morgan Edge is full of crap, but Perry says you can't argue with the man's audience share. Now, he doesn't buy what Edge is saying, but a lot of people do. Superman scares people. And Lois looks to Clark to back her up, but Clark himself has to say, maybe Morgan Edge has a point. Superman is an alien. He's the only one of his kind, and of course people are going to be afraid of him. This, of course, is a bit of an allegory for Clark's mood. He's feeling alienated, misunderstood. He's not confident in his own skin. We're still early in his career. And Clark imagines that Superman would be feeling rather alone right then. So Perry decides to assign an op-ed to Lois and Clark on the pros and cons of Superman. Lois has the pro, Clark has the con. And Jimmy points out that Superman may not be so alone after all. See, Jimmy has worked up his own paper, Olsen's Believe It or Not, which uh, it shows some super kids in a pimped-out motorcycle roaming around the Midwest. Wanting to investigate, Superman takes off, and it doesn't take long before he stumbles on Seraphin, being attacked by a bunch of parademons. If you remember, Seraphin is the cowboy. Superman helps the cowboy fight them off, and he tries to ask Seraphin some questions about who he is, where he's from, and this is when Mark Moonrider, Big Bear, and Viking call out and ask Superman who he is. They laugh at his name, which is odd because they come from a place called Supertown. And Moonrider, he tells Viking to check the mother box and explains that Darkseid has their friend, Beautiful Dreamer, and Darkseid is active here. And Superman has no clue what they're talking about, for the record. Uh, so the Forever People are basically acting as mavericks. Because Earth is a neutral territory, Darkseid can wage war here without breaking the pact. So the Forever People are basically there on their own, unofficially, so the High Father has possible deniability. Superman, not having a clue, uh, tries to get some clarification, but just then the Mother Box locates Beautiful Dreamer, and the Forever People take off in their souped-up multi-passenger motorcycle that I mentioned, and Superman follows. Meanwhile, Darkseid is using Beautiful Dreamer's psychic ability to scan the subconscious minds of the human race, and Darkseid tells Mantis that as soon as they find what they're looking for, Mantis is to track the reading and secure the specimen. Not that that gets too far, because the Forever People invade the complex along with Superman and just start jacking up parademons left and right. Superman actually manages to break away, and he finds the chamber with Beautiful Dreamer and Darkseid. And this is Superman seeing him for the first time. And Darkseid smacks Superman around a little, but Big Blue keeps his eye on the prize. He grabs Beautiful Dreamer and takes off with her. And as Superman and the Forever People get away... Darkseid uses a boom tube to leave and orders the parademons to self-destruct, which they do, bringing down the entire complex. 
So even after all of that, Superman still can't get any answers from the forever people before they jump into a boom tube themselves and take off, leaving Superman all alone again. But not for long. Another boom tube opens, and out pops Orion, ready for a fight, and he tells Superman that, hey, Superman's coming with him. That's where the issue ends. Uh, starting at page one with this, uh, I had to look this up. Victor Volcanum is actually another Jack Kirby creation, uh, who actually first appeared in Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 147. The character is, he's kind of like Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, he would, except he would underscore, under, pardon me, explore the underground of the earth. And he found a potion that ceases his ages, aging. So he's kind of like Dorian Gray at the same time. If you like some Legion of Extraordinary Gentlemen references to the movie, since Dorian Gray wasn't in the comic, I'm just saying. Uh, in page two and panel three, I had an odd reaction to the way that Superman's heat vision is depicted here. Because when I first looked at it, I thought his heat vision was banking and reflecting, and it took a second glance to realize that the effect was from Superman turning his head, leaving a swath in its wake. So, okay, fair enough. And on page three, I got excited because I thought, hey, the don't block the box sign is some kind of reference to a mother box, a nice little Easter egg. And then while driving around my town, I realized that that's an actual traffic sign. It's usually designed to keep uh, traffic stopping at a stoplight from blocking an awkwardly placed intersection there. So I found out that I wasn't as cool as I thought I was. I thought I had some awesome Easter egg, and lo and behold, just another average traffic sign. And some days you wake up, you're feeling good, you're feeling great, and then the other days you just realize you just aren't cool. That was my day. On page 8, I like the idea of Clark writing the con side of an op-ed on Superman. Uh, the irony is pretty apparent, but what I'd like to see is, what would Clark possibly write? And my main point on this page, actually... It lies on panels six and seven where the body language of Lois and Clark are, it's, it's tense. I like when a comic can say a lot without using dialogue or captions, as I mentioned with action comics. Gary Frank and Jeff Johns are good at that. It's, it's a nice addition to a visual medium without having to telegraph exactly what's going on between the characters. It lets you do the work just by giving you all the tools to do so. I know they aren't married at this point. They're not supposed to be, since this is early in Superman's career. But it can be read as if it's happening now, and that they are married. And let's be honest, that makes it awesome. I would hate to go home to that. Because uh, Superman's basically trashing himself, so Lois would actually know. Awkward. Moving on to page 11, I would love to see uh, some kind of ongoing backup feature or something for Jimmy Olsen's Believe It or Not. It'd be a great uh, feature to add some odd things from the real world. I know if you look back at old Golden Age, especially Action Comics, they actually had a section like that. It wasn't Jimmy Olsen's, but you would see, you know, a Ripley's type thing. Uh, page 12. It has a great pose. It's got a great background. But Superman just looks goofy in the main body of the splash. And yet, oddly, in the lower left-hand corner, looks pretty cool. That was just a nitpick. One question comes up for me on page 14, though. Where exactly does Clark think that he's flying to? I live in the Midwest. Uh, it's a huge swatch of the country. What was he hoping for? He, to just fly around until the forever people pop up? Now, of course, I mean, that works, but that's, that's not the point. What is he just hoping? Keeping his fingers crossed? I don't know. Moving on. When did Superman become the Queen of England? 
And apparently that happened on page 16 because Superman gets blasted by a parademon and calmly, quaintly says, that was unprovoked and unnecessary. It's like somebody bumped into his shoulder at the mall and didn't just blast the crap out of him. Pshaw. <laughs> page 17, it gives us a great exchange between Superman and Seraphin, where the cowboy asks, hello, have you seen you? I'm going to be honest with you, good dialogue. It will always win me over kids. I like banter between characters. I like it when it's crisp. Bendis is uh, often good at that. Um, Abnett and Landing are pretty pretty good at it themselves. So, uh, Page 19, it kind of introduces the main complaint I have with the issue. If you had no clue who the Forever People were, if we hadn't just reviewed it and talked a little bit about it, just to give you a basic overview, you would find this issue almost impossible to follow. There used to be a rule that any comic could be somebody's first, and you wrote it thusly, so anybody could jump on. Now, admittedly, the, the industry's changed, and I don't, I wouldn't want to recap each and every issue, etc. Um, but it's still, I mean, you still need some sort of accessibility. Luckily for us, we had that convenient overview of the Forever People right before the promo. So, we're in good standing, but others may not be. I really like Big Bear rubbing Viking's head on page 21. It cracks me up. And whenever I see Big Bear, one of the reasons he's my favorite is that I think of uh, actor Brian Blessed. He's been in a ton of Shakespearean movies, and you know what? He rocked them all. He's this big, burly man. He has this voice and this laugh that rumbles the floorboards. He is an awesome actor. And Big Bear, he is a standout among the forever people for me. So always happy to see any sort of... Uh, interaction with him. I do have one smaller gripe, which isn't nitpicky at all. Okay, maybe a little. Okay, okay, it is nitpicky. I'll admit it, but that's what I'm here for. Page 24 shows the Forever People blasting through the wall of Darkseid's complex, and Superman is cool with it. Superman doesn't know what this place is. For all intents and purposes, it could be a legitimate scientific facility, Superman makes no attempt to stop the potential property damage these strangers are causing. I call foul, but I have to admit, it doesn't really matter to the overall story, so my foul is overruled. Now, if you remember, on the first episode of Superman the Animated Series, they designed the Brainiac Chamber after Jack Kirby's art in the comic book adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey, with this very pinkish-red overhue... I think somebody took a tip from that playbook because if you look on page 27, the corridor that Superman is flying down, it has that same coloring, same paneling that you would see in that adaptation. And since this issue is clearly a Jack Kirby homage, I'll simply give it a well-played, sir. It's subtle. It's good. Uh, only people like me who, who really dig into it will get it. But hey, well-played. I appreciate it. Uh, page 28 gives us the first meeting between Superman and Darkseid and some odd framing. Beautiful Dreamer is seen on the last panel of page 27. But the angle on this is so wonky that you can't get, grasp where she is in relation to Darkseid. Now, it's a nice reveal on Darkseid. I just wish I didn't have to sacrifice the fact that he's standing near Beautiful Dreamer on the little pedestal to do so. That, uh, that seems pretty unnecessary. Um, but speaking of Darkseid's reveal, he shows up uh, on page 28 and 29, 
but he only utters one word phrases while slapping Superman, literally kind of like Rick James. He definitely comes across as Superman is not worth his time or his energy, which is how dark side should be. And I think the parademons, they are hardcore brainwashed. They'll serve dark side to the point of killing themselves at his command on pe- just like on page 30. That is some crazy stuff. That's some serpent in the rainbow action right there. But, but, you know, keeping in context, the Parademons, they are already chosen from the deranged engines of Apocalypse. They, they pick the craziest, the most hardcore, and then they have a jetpack slapped on them. So I don't know how much brainwashing would actually be necessary because the guys are already psycho. And to wrap up the page by page, I'm sorry, but it's Orion for the own of the issue with the full page splash on page 33. Bam. Epic. And that is a shame because it's Superman's book, which is where my beef with the issue comes in. Superman is kind of clueless through the whole story. Granted, he just met these strange people. He isn't given a whole lot to work with, but neither is the reader. The focus, it seems to be lost here. Are we looking at the forever people? If so, then the issue fails to give us much more than a few hints as to who they are before they take off. Is it meant to set up a showdown with Darkseid? Then it loses the intensity that would be needed for the epic fight between the two because Darkseid slaps him and then Superman's gone. So the issue kind of meanders, not sure where its focus should be. And in the process, readers who may not know who the forever people are, who Darkseid is, they're left in this lurch of confusion, just like Superman at the end of the issue. Uh, In terms of the art, Batista's style, it's really good, but better suited for the new gods than Superman himself. Man of Steel, he often looks awkward especially in the second half of the book. And Jason Wright's colors, they do not help that. Most of the backgrounds, as well as the characters, they seem to be in earthier tones, while Superman himself is in this primary tone. And the effect is a little like Superman was edited into the book with stickers. And uh, But, hey, the dialogue is crisp. The body language of the characters was solid, so the book wasn't by any means a loss. Just a little... I don't know, I guess misused, miss, miss, you know, kind of misses the mark just a little. So Orion showing up the last page is pretty priceless, but there shouldn't be any characters showing Superman up. That's huge. It's his book after all. So I give with all this mixed in, I give Superman a confidential number eight, a rating of, well, I, I guess I'm, I'm really torn on this, to be honest. This was a hard one. Uh, so I'll give the book the benefit of my doubt, and I'll give Superman Confidential number eight a rating of wait for the trade, uh, because you know it did set something up, and I'm curious to see where it goes, but not necessarily enough to add it to my pull list. So now, moving on, we're going to look at a pair of books that came out this month, but we're going to look at them a little bit differently. And what we're looking at is actually a pair of specials that tie into the Sinestro Corps War. That's going on over in Green Lantern. Um, it's uh, Tales of the Sinestro Corps, Superman Prime number one, which was cover dated December 2007, but released on October 24th of 07. And it boasts a story called Into the Sun, written by Jeff Johns, with art by Pete Woods and Jerry Ordway. It was lettered by John J. Hill and colored by Brad Anderson. And then we also have Tales of the Sinestro Corps, Cyborg Superman number one, which featured a story called Death of a Cyborg, and was also cover dated December 2007, but released on October 17, 2007. 
And the Cyborg special was written by Alan Burnett, penciled by Jay Leestein, colored, pardon me, lettered by Steve Wands, and colored by David Curiel. Both issues ran $3.99, and they are reprinted in the Green Lantern Tales of the Sinestro Corps Collected Edition in either hardcover or trade. And I'm not doing a full synopsis for these. Um, they basically serve as primers for the characters, framed within a story of both fighting many DC heroes. And these were released to kind of set up the characters for the Sinestro Corps War, but I thought it gave us a good chance to look at both characters. We lightly covered Superboy Prime a bit, uh, many episodes back, but this gives us a chance to catch up with him since the events of Infinite Crisis. So to recap where we were, Clark Kent, a different Clark Kent, he was born on what is essentially our Earth. So the heroes of the DC Universe, they exist, but they're in comic book form. They So this Clark Kent would go to the shop, get his books. He's probably not behind the reboot, I don't know. Um, but Clark was found actually in the woods, and named after the Clark Kent character in the comic books. Um, he, of course, was a comic book collector, kind of inevitably. And long story short, he found out that he actually had the power of Superman. He joined the fight um, in Crisis on Infinite Earths when the Earth was just when his Earth was destroyed. And he spent some time in the Paradise Dimension, hitting walls, changing the fabric of the DC universe until he got out. He tore into some Teen Titans. He killed Connor Kent as well as the Earth Two Superman. He got trapped in the Speed Force and was imprisoned by the Green Lantern Corps under a red sun. So now, Superman Prime was broken out by the Sinestro Corps to recruit him. And he kind of went along with Sinestro's plans to serve his own end, So he'd, and he donned the yellow suit of the Corps. Which brings us to where the story opens, with a ticked-off Superman Prime desecrating the statues of Bart Allen and the, the Flash, who was killed while Superman Prime was in prison. Like I mentioned... It's a refresher on the character, but the issue actually shows us some of his relationship with Lori, a girl from his own Earth. I actually ended up feeling a bit of sympathy, but towards the issue's end, to be honest. Uh, knowing a little more about his relationship with Lori and how they watched the sunrise and sunset whenever one of them was upset. Uh, but Superman Prime's main goal is to be the Superman. Unfortunately, he has a lot of anger issues, and he doesn't know how to control his powers. I bring him up because he's a good look at what could have happened to Superman without the guiding hands of Jonathan and Martha Kent. He has good intentions, essentially, uh, but he takes a horrible path to get what he wants. Unlike the Clark Kent we know, this kid is self-centered. He's more interested in how being Superman affects himself rather than how being Superman can affect the rest of the world. Now, that's kind of a catch-up to where we are with him. I'm actually very excited to talk about the cyborg Superman because we haven't gotten to cover him yet. To get to his origin, uh, he first appeared in The Adventures of Superman number 466 back in 1990. And he was a member of the crew of the shuttle Excalibur, along with his wife and two others. Uh, it was a, I'm just going to be honest, it was a Fantastic Four allegory. Completely, complete, blatant. And uh, except that this radiation caused, uh, it was actually caused by Superman throwing the Eradicator into the sun. So he was possibly partially responsible. Um, we never actually confirm that the energy from the Eradicator actually did that, but for the Human Torch allegory, he flies into the sun after losing his mind. Uh, the Thing allegory, he destroys himself in, in uh, an MRI booth. And Hinshaw's wife, Terry, starts phasing in and out of another dimension, as well as, well, Hinshaw's own body begins to deteriorate down to a skeleton. Now, Hank was able to save his wife. But he died himself because he basically decomposed, which is yummy. 
But that wasn't the end of Hank Henshaw. He became this being of energy who was able to essentially possess metal and electronics. He made one more attempt to see his wife by transporting himself into a robot. Unfortunately, this freaked his wife out to the point that she threw herself out of a window to her own death. The scientists around at Star Labs tried to trap Henshaw's consciousness, but he got away in a Kryptonian ship and traveled the galaxy plotting his revenge against Superman, which came by the way of Mongol. When Superman died, Henshaw was able to use the alloy from the Kryptonian rocket, Superman's own DNA within that rocket, and create a cyborg version of the Man of Steel. And he became one of the four potential Supermans, and then he helped Mongol blow up Coast City. But Henshaw is himself unable to die, which is what he really wants. He's tried many, many times. This desire, this makes him very mentally unstable, which is why Sinestro decided to recruit him. Not only does he have Kryptonian powers like flight, but he has the cyborg components as well, where he can form weapons or control electronic devices. This makes him a very hard-edged enemy. Now you add a yellow power ring to that, and it's explosive. Henshaw is nothing if not persistent. I'll give him that. Uh, both he and Superman Prime, they represent the sh some shadows of Superman himself. Cyborg is a Superman with all power and no real emotion or compassion. And Superman Prime is the ego to Superman's id. And while Connor had some of the drawbacks, uh, some of the same ones as Superman Prime, Connor actually managed to get a grip on his powers and kind of managed to get a grip on his role in the world. Given a little bit of time and focus, Superman Prime, perhaps, he could have become a great ally to the Man of Steel, a great hero in his own right. Likewise, Henshaw could have, he could help mankind with his gifts to advance science and technology as well as being a hero. But neither character was given the chance. Both of them are ruled by fear. And for Prime, it's the fear of not being good enough. For Henshaw, it's the fear of being trapped with the living, watching everything he loves wither. This makes them, of course, Prime targets for the Sinestro Corps. Now, we're going to be following the development of these two characters in the Elsewhere sections, but ultimately I wanted to touch that these two touch on the fact that these two came out Talk a little bit about both of them, uh, just to make you aware of them. Um, and oddly, that brings us conveniently to a section I like to call Elsewhere in the DC Universe, where I like to see what was going on elsewhere in the DC Universe as this was happening. So as far as that, Supergirl continues her fright with Karate Kid, and I mean the Legionnaire, not Ralph Macchio, in Supergirl number 22, while Superman lends Steel a helping hand in Infinity Inc. number 2. The Superman of Kingdom Come arrives just in time to greet Gog in the Justice Society of America number 10. Booster teams up with Jonah Hex. No, really, Jonah Hex. Uh, this goes down in Booster Gold number 3. Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew make a return to the page in the first of the three-issue miniseries, Captain Carrot and the Final Arc. Connor and Dinah team up as they search for Oliver Queen and Green Arrow and Black Canary number 1. Sinestro and his core continue to bust up the galaxy as the Green Lanterns are given the ability to use lethal force in Green Lantern number 24 and Green Lantern Core number 17. And Wonder Woman rises from the disaster of Amazon's attack in Wonder Woman number 13. Batman takes over the team and brings Katana, Martian Manhunter, and Catwoman with him in Batman and the Outsiders number 1. 
and the Justice League continues to grapple with the combined might of their enemies, all rolled into one in Justice League in Justice League of America number 14. Supergirl and the Titans battle JLA foe Starro in Teen Titans number 52. And the dynamic duo prepare for the upcoming return of Ra's al Ghul in Superman number 670 and Robin Annual number 7. And the fourth world begins crashing down as the age ends and the death of the new gods number 1. And over in Countdown, the challengers of the unknown, they meet up with their mentors in another reality with some striking results in issue 30. In 29, Karate Kid leads an assault on Brother I and the Omax, proving that there apparently is a need to beat a dead horse. Jimmy Olsen is kidnapped by Forager in issue number 28. Jason Todd betrays Donna Troy and Kyle Rayner in countdown number 27. And most importantly, we get a title change with issue number 26. The issue is now known as Countdown to Final Crisis, leading into a crossover event that will leave many stupefied for years to come. And that is what was happening elsewhere in the DCU. So, right after this promo, we'll jump right into this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series, which features, well, it doesn't feature, but it has an appearance by a certain new god that we've been talking about quite a bit. So, stay with me, here's a promo, and I'll be right back with you. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium? Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. It's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics and then we talk about them because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes. Well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics. Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. And we are back to look at Superman the Animated Series, uh, Tools of the Trade. This is episode 12, which originally aired on February 1st, 1997. It was written by Mark Evanier and directed by Kurt Gaeta. Of course, starred Tim Daly as Superman Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Lauren Tom as Angela Chin. Uh, Lauren Tom you'll probably know best from Futurama. Bruce Weitz as Bruno Mannheim. Joanna Cassidy as Maggie Sawyer. Joseph Bologna, who was in Big Daddy, played Adam Sandler's father, as as uh, Dan Turpin. Michael Ironside. And no, he's not showing up. Michael Ironside as Darkside. We're still fighting. Michael York, who was in uh, Austin Powers as Basil Exposition as Canto. Kevin Michael Richardson as Al and a hot dog for customer. And Phil Hayes as Blaine. And we open on the Metropolis Gold Exchange in a pretty, pretty day. A man buys a hot dog and wonders if anybody has ever tried to rob the exchange. The vendor says that somebody would need a tank the size of Pittsburgh to rob it. Well, conveniently, a tank the size of Pittsburgh crashes into the front of the exchange around that time. 
And the Metropolis Police, specifically the Special Crimes Unit, including Dan Turpin and Maggie Sawyer making their debut, uh, they hit the scene and the tank begins throwing squad cars around. Cut to Clark Kent and Lois Lane, stuck in traffic. Smelling a story, Lois hops out of the car and jumps right in the middle of the story. A chopper watches from above, and the reporter inside says that the Metropolis Special Crime Unit might as well save their ammo. And just then, a blue and red streak flies by, and the reporter adds that the sides may have evened up. Now, from the comfort of his wingback chair, Bruno Mannheim, who we met way back in the day in the Toy Man episode, watches the action shocked at the appearance of Superman. And as the, tra- tra- as the tank tries to enter the exchange, Superman pulls it backwards and finds himself swatted into a statue. After taking a shot at the Man of Steel, the tank finds itself lifted up off the ground and dropped, damaging the tank. From his viewing post, Mannheim calls out, My tank! Look what he's doing to my tank! Superman rips the door off the tank and yanks the drivers out, turning the SCU into a cleaning crew. And at a press conference, there's a speculation that inner gang may be involved. Turpin and Sawyer try to quell the questions, but Angela Chan calls them out because she's a snotty, snotty woman. She points out the SCU can't seem to bust a jaywalker without Superman. Now, Turpin, being Turpin, is noticeably ticked. But Sawyer kind of plays it cool and uh, kind of shrugs it off. And... uh, can't bust a jaywalker without Superman. Sorry, that line got me. <laughs> Meanwhile, at a storage unit uh, on his grounds, Mannheim starts losing his cool and goes off on how Intergang needs real weapons, not the crap that's been coming their way. And there's suddenly a loud boom that shakes the storage unit, and a figure walks in, appearing silhouetted in the doorway. The stranger introduces himself as Kanto, and he's been sent to help. Kanto uses a staff in his hand to shake Mannheim's guns to pieces. He's come bearing gifts. Later on, Manheim, on Manheim's estate, Kanto uses a small device to melt the steel of a safe. Manheim can't figure out why Kantor has been sent there to give them these weapons. And Kantor then displays a pair of gloves that create a pair of giant energy fists. And while he demonstrates the sheer strength of the energy hands, Turpin climbs the wall to watch and peers over. Manheim wants to know what Kanto's boss wants. And Kanto says, nothing for now, but when he, when the time comes, the benefactor will call in the favor. But he chooses the time. Turpin watches Kanto uh, open a boom tube and disappear. Stunned, Turpin can't figure it out. He retells the story to Maggie later, and she goes off on him for not following procedure. Turpin is convinced that the tank is Mannheim's, and he insists he'll collar him, even if he has to drag Mannheim in on a leash himself. We switch, switch scenes to a train rolling down the tracks, and Mannheim's men climb the tracks, activate the energy fists, and crush the supports of these raised tracks. The train can't stop and crashes to the ground below. This allows the men to melt the wall and use to, of the train and use the staff to disarm the train's guards. Sawyer gets the alarm for the compute, commuter train, and she and Turpin pursue. At the Daily Planet, Lois brushes past Clark in pursuit of the train's crash story. But as soon as the elevator doors shut, Clark steps into an open elevator shaft and whooshes out as, well, you know who. And as Turpin and Sawyer approach, their car comes under attack and is run off the road and sends it careening down. Superman catches the car in midair and one of Mannheim's thugs taunts the Man of Steel, energy fists at the ready. The thug throws cars at Superman, bringing the power lines down, almost hitting another train before Superman stands on the pole up, uh, up again. I gotta stop right there because it just hit me. 
why are the trains on the tracks? The commuter train crash is already well known. And granted, you don't want to slow traffic down in a city like Metropolis, but if the tracks are damaged, if there's already a crash in the path that could obstruct this, wouldn't they slow that down? I'm no expert, but that just hit me. That wasn't even in my notes. So anyway, it almost hits them. And in, in the time that it takes Superman to rescue the train, the thieves have gotten away. And as emergency services work on the train, Lois scribbles down details in her notepad. Sawyer tells Dan that he she wants to officially bring Superman in on this case, which doesn't go over with Terrible Turpin very well at all. He wanted to call her Mannheim, and he hands over his badge just as Superman lands on the scene. Awkward. Later that night, Turpin slips into Mannheim's house and is surprised when Kanto exits a boom tube and uh, right in front of him and wraps him up in some bindings using yet another device. Now, uh, Turpin is put in the storage shed where Kanto, Kanto gives Mannheim a new weapon, a gun that fires a beam that will destroy even the most indestructible target. Meanwhile, Maggie and Superman discuss Dan and whether he should, he would actually do something foolish since he isn't picking up his phone. Yes. And back at the storage unit, a device starts going haywire, and Kanto tells Mannheim and his boys it's an early detection device, device for Superman. Mannheim is chomping at the bit to test his new toy out and arms it as Turpin struggles to cut his bindings against um, a nut that's outcropped. Superman comes flying onto the grounds and is hit by two cannons fired by goons on the house's roof. Superman is able to deflect their shots back at them and take them out. He enters the storage unit and a thug wills on him, wails on him with the energy fists, nearly getting the upper hand before Superman breaks free of them, breaking the things hand, breaking the guy's hands in the process. And there is, yes, bone crunching. It's pretty amazing for a cartoon on Saturday mornings. Superman evades a few shots as, uh, well, he comes around the corner and Turpin tries to warn Superman, but Mannheim actually gets a shot in with his new gun, sending the Man of Tomorrow flying across the ground. So Superman is running from the shots, but he feels the brunt of the gun, which it turns out isn't even firing at full power. So Mannheim juices it up and takes aim at the Man of Steel, but before he can shoot, Turpin tapples, tackles him, and the two wrestle for the gun, sending the shots flying every direction. Superman uses this to his advantage and heats up the gun, so Mannheim must drop it. Kanto runs off with Mannheim in pursuit. Near the yard's edge, Kanto opens a boom tube and tells a begging Mannheim that he had his chance before entering the tube. Desperate, Bruno leaps into the boom tube just before it closes, and Superman is too late. Afterward, Turpin is giving an interview about the defeat of Mannheim and Intergang, and Chen makes yet another smart remark about how Superman saved Turpin's skin again, and Superman steps forward to correct that. If not for Dan Turpin, he wouldn't be standing there. And he gives Dan a heartfelt thanks before flying off into the night. And Lois asks Turpin, where's Mannheim? To which Turpin says, he's moved outside of our jurisdiction. And cue a scene cut to a fiery hellhole of a planet, where Mannheim follows Kanto, now in somewhat stranger, more Renaissance clothes. And Mannheim demands some answers at this point and wants to know who Kanto is working for. Kanto points to a pulpit where a massive figure with a booming voice tells Mannheim that he is his new lord and master, and he can call him Darkseid. Mannheim cowers in fear as the episode fades to black. Uh, yeah, the first appearance of Darkseid. 
And uh, this is really the beginning of something big, something that will be instrumental to the series, especially in the end. Actually, this ties a lot of that together. Yeah, I just got chills thinking of that episode. Well, it's a long way off for us. We're only nearly the end of season one, so I'm jumping ahead. Uh, Turpin appears modeled after Darkseid's creator, Jack the King Kirby. A lot of you probably know that, but it's both in look and feisty attitude. I often fantasize about getting in a fight with Turpin or with uh, Kirby on my side. Anyway, Mannheim would have to be, he would have been a really, really annoying villain. Uh, just sort of a villain, in, but he was set up so well so many episodes ago. And with that one appearance, he fluidly actually becomes a villain rather than a conveniently placed stooge. So really, it felt natural. And this episode had some great moments. From Clark dropping into the elevator shaft and flying into action to Lois ditching him in traffic to get the story. The characters were actually spot on. There's been some off episodes recently, but this one was on fire. This episode actually moves the show forward by several notches and pays some nice homages to Kirby. Apocalypse looks exactly how it should uh, with the Kirby style decorations and all. And you see just enough of dark side to whet the appetite and be ready for more. It's a nice, nice episode and the penultimate one for season one of Superman, the animated series. So that's right. Next week's episode will feature the last episode of Superman, the animated series for the first season. And after that, we'll be taking a little bit of a break to cover Last Sun and Camelot Falls, as well as talking about one of the best Superman books ever written with a super secret special guest that I'm very excited to bring on this show. But before that, we settle back into Sundays with September 18th. And that's where episode uh, season two, episode two will be happening. And um, we'll be looking at the January cover dated Superman books, including some more fourth world goodness in Superman Batman 42 and Superman Confidential number 9, and we'll see Superman adjust to the 31st century in action comics, and look at the roster of the Legion of Superheroes. And if that isn't enough, the finale of the third Kryptonian in Superman number 670, all of that in two weeks on Sunday, September 18th. Uh, join me if you would, and I appreciate you downloading this episode. It's good to be back, good to have Superman Forever Radio back on the air. So until September 18th, until next episode, this is Superman's pal J. David Weeder saying, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. You can find Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com and on iTunes where you can leave a review. Superman Forever Radio is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network where you can find Superman podcasts from all eras of the Man of Steel. And it is located at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. And there are several ways to contact the show. Drop me an email. The address is mail at supermanforever.com or follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Superman forever. That is Superman, the number four ever. Also, the show is on Facebook. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash Superman forever radio and you can use the like button to follow that way. And finally, you can leave a voicemail for the show at 703-95-SUPER. Please keep the messages short and do not include personal information like phone numbers, etc., as these will be played on air. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment.